Our text for meditation this Transfiguration Sunday is our Gospel reading. Hear the word of our Lord from Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My mother was once in a woman's Bible study group. This was at an evangelical church. I think I was eight or so around this time. At some point, the ladies in the study were asked, What would you do if Jesus appeared to you? If ever there was a question, we must all find out the answer to. This is certainly it. When asked, What would you do if Jesus appeared to you? I'm pretty sure the answer for most Lutherans is the same thing we always do. We receive Christ's presence when we take his body and blood at communion. And there, the question of, what would you do, is answered with simple obedience to the words of our Lord, take and eat, take and drink. But also, one day every single one of us will be in Christ's presence in a special way, particularly on Judgment Day. As far as the final day is concerned, answering the question of, what would you do, is a little backwards as Judgment Day is all about what our Lord Jesus does, not about what we do. On that day, we simply await the final deliverance he has won for us and rejoice in the resurrection. But in that women's Bible study, the question was not oriented around Judgment Day, nor was it about communion. It was all about a private appearance of Jesus Christ. The question was specifically aimed at what you would do if Jesus appeared to you in the same way angels appear to men. One moment, you're folding laundry or getting ready for bed, and the next moment, Christ just blinks into the room as though he teleported there. This more specific question is totally foreign to the Lutheran mind. We are often so purpose-oriented in our theology that the idea of Jesus just showing up confuses us. 
what would I do? Uh, it depends. What is Christ appearing to me for exactly? And hey, how do I know this is truly Jesus? Hold on, let me grab my Bible to see if this is actually something God says would happen or not. Unfortunately, that is not how the women in the study group responded. My mother, bless her heart, had to listen to each of these evangelical women give some of the silliest answers possible. It was a parade of virtue-signaling claptrap. Oh, I would fawn over him. If Jesus appeared to me, I would weep with joy as I touched his nail-scarred hands. I would do a happy dance because Jesus was there. And on and on it went as they took turns giving the most sentimental, righteous-sounding responses they could come up with. But then... When it was my mother's turn to give her opinion, she simply said, I would cower in fear and beg for mercy. The whole room fell silent for a while, but then erupted into arguments over what she said. Funny how that works, but my mother did not budge one inch. I am a sinner, Jesus is God, and on this side of the new heavens and new earth, I'm not worthy. My mother stood in good company, too. The apostles did the same thing in our reading. Sort of, anyway. We know that the inner circle apostles, Peter, James, and John, accompanied our Lord Jesus for the whole of his three-year ministry before the crucifixion and resurrection. During this time, their activities in his presence were understandable. They knew Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but they did not fully understand what that entailed, so they treated him like a very special rabbi. They did what he told them to do. They asked him questions and learned from his words, with Matthew likely acting as the stenographer of the Twelve. Day-to-day -day life with Jesus Christ took a form not unlike the standard life of any itinerant preacher, just with a whole lot more miracles. But something different happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. The presence of Christ was different than more akin to the questions the ladies at the Bible study were asked. After his face began to shine and his clothing became white, this must have reminded them of their upbringing learning the Old Testament. I find it hard to believe they weren't thinking of these words, found in Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The apostles knew that this was a monumental event related to the law. In this moment, our Lord Christ meets with Moses and Elijah. Moses was the lawgiver, one whom God charged with bringing the old covenant to the people. It was his face that shined in Exodus from simply being around the perfection of God's holiness. Elijah was the great prosecutor. It was he who confronted Israel with their disobedience, and such was his prophetic power that he simply prayed that it would not rain 
and God answered with a severe drought in accordance with the warnings of the law. This is quite a moment. The lawgiver and the prosecutor standing and speaking with Christ. The three apostles present must have wondered if this meant they were equals. After all, with Christ's face shining like Moses's did, St. Peter seems to assume this is the case, so he offers to make dwellings for all three. But our Heavenly Father corrects this and establishes the supremacy of the Lord Jesus above even Moses and Elijah. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses did not bring the law. Moses just communicated what he received to the children of Israel. Elijah did not bring the law. Elijah simply relayed messages from God to the people. Moses and Elijah did what they were told, simple as. But our Heavenly Father pronounces a dire truth here, that Jesus Christ is the one with the power to tell us what to do, to give the commandment to bring the law. As the Logos, he is the very one who commands all believers. In that moment on the mountain, Christ showed his absolute holiness, and the voice of the Father declared his only Son to be the standard, measure, and rule. Christ brings the law. And so the three apostles do as my mother said she would do in this situation. They cower as they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now you might balk at this. Jesus Christ as bringer of law? That is blasphemy, pastor. Jesus Christ is merciful. He died on the cross for our forgiveness. Jesus Christ is all about the gospel. Beloved, if that is how you feel, then the one blaspheming is you. Jesus Christ is God. We do not believe, as Marcion did, that false teacher who held that the God of the Old Testament was different from the God of the New Testament. We do not hold to a soft version of what Marcion taught either, the notion in so many churches today that the Father brought the law, but Jesus brought the gospel. We believe in the Trinity, and so Jesus Christ is God. He is the same God who spoke the Ten Commandments out to the children of Israel from Mount Sinai. He is the same God who spoke to Elijah through that still, small voice. The Mount of Transfiguration was not the first time Moses and Elijah had heard from Christ. And so Christ brings the law. What do we do when confronted with the law? We perish. We are terrified. Our guilt and our sinfulness overwhelm us, don't they? I cannot emphasize this enough. We are completely helpless when confronted with God's law. When confronted with the law bringer, we are not only helpless, but we are desperate. Remember in Isaiah 6, the prophet sees the Lord in his throne room, and the prophet can only scream out in terror, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
the prophet can only shout out his confession and tremble. The law is not just a thing, beloved. The law comes from our God who pronounces it to us. And the law says quite succinctly, follow this or you are damned. This is not an anti-law or an antinomian sermon, by the way. The law is good. Countless generations of believers have understood that this comes from God and that means it is perfect. And they experienced immense blessing just for trying to follow the commandments. We do well to do the same. The lawbringer is even better, though. Moses' face shone for a while because he was in the presence of God to receive the law. Christ's face shines because he is God and thus always brings the law. For this reason, we understand that we can never, by our own power, satisfy the commandment. Simply put, if we were capable, then our faces would shine by themselves too. Now, Lutherans speak of a second use of the law, that of a mirror. The way this is usually expressed is that the law accuses you of sin, convicts you of your faults, and tells you that you need a savior. This way of putting it is, while a bit mistaken, it is not the law itself doing this, as though the law were a person or some secondary angry deity. Beloved, the fact of the matter is, it is not the law that accuses you, God himself does. He is the standard, and when we fail him through our sins of thought, word, or deed, he makes sure to let us know through the commandment and our conscience. God is the one who tells you that you need a savior. And this is good news, actually, because God is the only one who can provide that Savior, himself. Jesus comes and touches the three apostles. Up until this point, they were absolutely terrified. But Christ comes up and puts his hand on them, saying, Rise and have no fear. God is the one who put fear in their hearts. Christ, being God himself, is the only one who can remove that fear. Jesus Christ alone, by the way. Moses and Elijah went away before the apostles could look up. They were not party to the restoration, being unable to do what Jesus can. God is the one who tells you that you need a Savior. God is the only one who can provide that Savior. God is the one who is that Savior. Thus Moses and Elijah depart. Only Christ remains. Christ says, Rise and have no fear, because he had compassion on them. He says this because he knows he will die for them. They are able to lift up their eyes because of the reassurance they have that he is their protector and their deliverer. He alone is the one who can lift up our heads as he shines his face upon us. Christ brings us the gospel and he brings it to us such that it resides deeply in our souls, encouraging us and bringing joy into our hearts. St. Peter speaks of this moment, by the way. In Second Peter, he says, 
we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. St. Peter goes to this great length to point everyone reading this epistle to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. The Mount of Transfiguration was the point in which St. Peter, the one who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew 16, now he understands that everything about the faith is centered around our Lord and Savior. Christ brought the law. Christ brings the gospel. Our entire faith, Christianity, is about Jesus. Is it a coincidence that Jesus touches the apostles then? He must have gone to them one by one. When Isaiah was in the presence of God in the throne room, he cries out because of his guilt until an angel touches him with a piece of coal from the altar and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The angel shows Isaiah that atonement has taken away his sin using tools from the altar where atoning sacrifices took place to communicate that forgiveness through touch. Our Lord Jesus is the capital A atonement. He is the sacrifice and he is the one from whom forgiveness comes. For him to go to each of these three apostles one by one and tell them, have no fear. It is an act of absolution. They were afraid on account of the law. Christ, through his redemptive love, removed the need for fear. When departing the mountain, our Lord says, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Presumably, the apostles were faithful in keeping quiet about it until after the resurrection. After all, it is after our redemption that we hear the words of Christ telling us to do things, and we do not feel the same fear as we had when the law first came. Obedience to him becomes something we are enabled to do. The apostles do not go back to cowering in fear once they understand that Christ is the center of all and the Savior of all. May we do the same, beloved. May we appear before our Lord in all confidence, having been accused by God through the law, absolved by our Lord through the gospel, and having put on Christ in our baptism, and thus receiving the same absolving touch. May we now follow him with all the enabling that he has provided. Now certainly, if Christ does just apparate in front of you, I'm sure our response is most definitely going to be fear. But it is after that, that our Redeemer comes, takes away that fear, and we rejoice to be made stronger by him. Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.